I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4. When I transitioned from pastoring to a teaching role, I looked back over the time I had spent in pastoral ministry in three churches and thought about what God taught me in those settings because I was in a position of equipping a new generation of pastors. And my mind went to Ephesians 4, and I realized that I had spent numerous uh, times preaching in those settings of churches in Ephesians chapter 4. I returned to this chapter over and over again because it outlined for me what is supposed to be taking place in the life of the church. And this chapter is just, just chock full, just stuffed with truths and principles and instructions for us as a church. And the book that Ben mentioned, The Thriving Church, is based on this chapter and specifically verses 1 through 16. And what I would like to do is, is select and highlight some ideas from this chapter that I think may be helpful for you this morning and call it valuing your role in Christ's church building work. Valuing your role in Christ's church building work. And let me read for us Ephesians chapter 4. I'm actually going to read uh, these first 16 verses to provide the context for what we will talk about and then go back and highlight several ideas. So look with me, please, at Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by what every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Included in the rich blessings that God provides for us when he saves us, is the opportunity and ability to serve in Christ's church-building work. For some of you, you have had the privilege of knowing the Lord and walking with God and serving Jesus Christ in his church for many years, maybe decades, maybe almost a lifetime. I hope it never loses its freshness for you. I hope you never lose your sense of awe at the privilege of serving the Lord in his church and being part of his church-building work here on this earth. Others may be at the other end of life. You are starting out. You're beginning your, your youth or your, your teenage or young adult years, and you look out over a lifetime ahead of you. 
And I wonder if you have a sense of awe and of privilege when you think about the church and serving Christ through his church. As you think about the the, the many directions your life could go, is there value in your mind on the church and on the role that you might have in it? Or if you're anywhere in between, any stage of life, maybe even during hard times and trials and and crises of life, we tend to, to pull back and say, well, it's a little bit too much for me to continue serving in the church. And yet those are times when we really need to value Christ's church and even renew our commitment to being part of what he is doing in his church. Every Christian has a role in the work of building up the church of Jesus Christ. And the way I'm wording this principle this morning, uh, the idea of valuing your role in Christ's church building work is applicational. So we're going to look at your role, but I hope that you will take away that sense of value. I hope that you will personally apply to your own heart the need to value the opportunity and the role that you have. So my aim is to understand this text in a way that will remind you or convince you to value your role in Christ's church building work. And let's find three reasons here for valuing your role in Christ's church building work in this text. So look back with me again at verse 7. We're going to look at verse 7 and down through about verse 13 here this morning. So in verse 7, Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here's the first reason to value your role. It is because it is included in the riches of God's grace that you receive at salvation. Now, I want to ask you a few questions. I've already observed you guys are kind of an interactive group, so that's good. So I'm going to ask you to to respond to these questions. And you can can say yes, or you can say amen, or hallelujah, or whatever you want to do to to respond to these questions. And some of them are are pretty basic, but they'll progress here as we go along. So, So the first one is this. Do you believe that a man named Jesus lived in Israel about 2,000 years ago. That's just a basic fact of history. Do you you believe that, that a man named Jesus actually lived in the land of Israel about 2,000 years ago? There we go. There's some answers. All right. Do you believe he is the son of God? Do you believe he is God, the son? Do you believe he died for our sins? Now, this next question is going to distinguish you from a lot of other people. Do you believe that this man who was actually physically dead came back to life? Do you believe that? Do you believe he rose from the dead? One more question. Do you believe that witnessed by, observed by a group of men who stood around with him, do you believe that his feet left this earth and that he ascended out of their sight and returned back to heaven to his throne on high? Do you believe that? All right. That's, that's called the ascension of Christ. Christ ascended. And Paul is stating that truth. And he wants to bring that truth, not only the, the life and the death, not only the existence and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ into their view, but the ascension. And he is building his argument here about the role that we have in, his, in Christ's church building work And our sense of value of that on the fact that the ascended Christ has given us these gifts. So when Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended back to heaven, he did two things that are vital to the life of the church, including this church. He sent the Holy Spirit. And that's recorded, of course, in Acts chapter 2. And Peter declared this. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, so there's the ascension, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, poured out this which you now see and hear, Acts 2, 32 and 33. So 
Peter was, was informing these people, explaining what was happening, this spectacular event when the Holy Spirit descended and gave birth to the church there at Pentecost in Jerusalem. So, so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. But secondly, when he ascended to heaven, he provided the church with resources to continue Christ's work on the earth. What are these resources called? They're gifts. And that's what Paul is Referring to when he says in verse 7, this grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then the end of verse 8, he gave gifts to men. So the Holy Spirit's ministry to the church was not only to give life to the church, but also to impart gifts to the church. To distribute those resources, which are abilities and opportunities to carry on Christ's church-building work here on this earth. You know what grace is. Most of you could probably define the idea of grace. Isn't that a sweet word for us? Don't we love that idea of the grace of God? Grace is just basically his favor. It's God's goodness which he shows to us. He favors us. He does favor to us, But we also know that included with that idea of God's favor is that we cannot merit that favor, can we? We don't deserve that favor from God. And so grace includes that idea that it is God's favor, but it is free to us. We could never obtain it on our own. When God saves us, he extends his favor to us. He brings us into his favor, but he does so freely because of Christ. And when he shows us that grace, when he saves us by his grace, with that gift of grace, he also imparts to us these gifts. That's what Paul is saying. This grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and he gave gifts to men. So the gifts that he gives us, I like to say, are included with the grace package we receive at salvation. Who receives this? Verse 7, each one of us, which means that every single believer, excluding no one, has a part and a place in the life of the church. None of us can be a spectator, can we? None of us can just be an observer. Each one of us has a part and a place in Christ's church-building work. Would you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, please? We're going to turn over for just a couple of minutes to Peter's first epistle. Uh, Paul talks about these gifts in a couple of other places, uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Peter talks about these gifts, these resources, these abilities and opportunities to serve in Christ's church building work here in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want you to see how Peter describes these, especially with the idea that they are a gift from God's grace to us and the value that we should place on them. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter 4, 10. As, look at what Peter says, just like Paul, each has received a gift. Use it to serve. And not just to serve in a vacuum, not just to perform activities, do jobs, but to serve one another. So they're relational, aren't they? Now look at the next phrase. As good stewards of God's varied grace. So here, Peter highlights that these gifts are from the grace of God, but he also emphasizes the fact that we are managers of them. We are responsible for how we use them. That's what it means to be a steward. So, so it's a gift that God gives to us, but we have a responsibility for how we use it and how we invest in this work. Peter's talking about the same thing as Paul, but in a little bit different way. Uh, he talks about it being a gift. He talks about us being stewards. He refers to the manifold grace of God. So again, the, the grace of God that comes to us in various ways. Uh, Paul talks about how there is one spirit but different gifts, right? And so you have different kinds of responsibilities. In fact, Peter categorizes them. Notice he says in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Oracles are utterances. That's referring to the fact that if anybody 
is speaking into the life of the church, they should make sure that what they say is according to what God has said. But notice the distinction that he makes here. He says, speaks. And some of you do this. You have a speaking role. You stand in front of a group and you teach the word. Or you sit down with another person and you disciple that person. Or you counsel them from the word of God. There are formal ways in which we engage these speaking gifts, but there are also informal ways. You all love to spend time together and, and chat, don't you? Before and after services. As you do that, you're speaking to each other. Later in the passage, in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about speaking the truth in love. So even as you converse with each other, you're exercising this speaking role. You're encouraging, you're exhorting, you're comforting. That's what the church does. So he's saying you may exercise this in a formal way, speaking to people, or an informal way, just in casual conversation. There are speaking gifts, but notice what he says next. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There are serving gifts. This is anything that helps the work of God. Anything that advances what God is doing in his church. It may be because you hold a position of, of helping people through the, the morning and find where they're supposed to go or caring for groups of people, caring for children. They're functional gifts. They're gifts that, that we employ to maintain the work of the church. We serve, we move chairs, we serve food, taking meals to people in need, giving, contributing financially to the work of ministry or to people who have need. So they're serving gifts. And he says, use these with the strength that God gives you. But notice how he finishes the thought. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what we see here is that Peter is highlighting the fact that whatever kind of gift you have, however you may use that gift, it's by God's grace, you're a manager of it, and you use it in the church for the glory of God. Now go back with me to Ephesians, but this time stop in chapter 3, and let me point out for you Paul's own testimony of recognizing that his gift came to him by the grace of God. So look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Ephesians 3, 7, he says, Of this gospel... I was made a minister, Ephesians 3, 7. Look at what he says. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So we have Paul, we have Peter highlighting for us and helping us understand that the gifts that we have are from the grace of God, don't we? So, so we see that Jesus Christ gave us these gifts which are our role in Christ's church-building work from the riches of the grace of God. Your ability to serve comes out of the rich storehouse, the infinite reservoir of who God is and what he is doing in our lives today. Your life, your role in Christ's church-building work is valuable. So, so how will that affect your view of what you do in church life, whether you serve in a formal way with a position and a title and a job description, or whether you serve informally without anybody telling you what to do, you just help and serve and speak. What does this do for you? How does this help you realizing that, that your role is a gift of the grace of God? I think one thing that it should do for us is fuel our eagerness to be involved in church. I mean, it should just really build in us and stoke the fire of desire to serve because what, what a gift, what a privilege. And he has graced us with this privilege and he has made us managers of that work. A few weeks ago, an interesting thing happened. There was a man who was a friend of, of my wife and me at our school. and He was there for a meeting. And he asked to meet with me. And so he came to my office, and we chatted and caught up for a few minutes. And then he pulled out a bank envelope. 
Now, when somebody pulls out a bank envelope, and you can tell it's not just one layer, but it's a little bit thick, and they hold it out to you, that's an interesting situation, isn't it? Right? That gets your attention, doesn't it? And that's what he did. And he held out to me this, this thick bank envelope, and he said, Dean, there are 10 brand new $100 bills in this bank envelope. And I want you and Faith to think about some students that you know that would be blessed to receive a gift like this, one of these $100 bills, and that would encourage them to know that somebody cares about them and that God sees them and God is providing for them. Wow. I could not go buy fishing gear. I could not take my wife out for a nice weekend with that envelope full of cash, could I? All of a sudden, I had been graced with a very valuable gift, but I also had a responsibility to manage that gift, not for my own benefit or use, but for the blessing of other people. And that's exactly what God has done for you and for me. He has graced us with the opportunity to be involved in his church-building work. And so that did build some excitement in us. It's like, wow, we get to be the, the messengers and the, the deliverers of this blessing to some other people. And in a similar way, we, we feel the responsibility of involvement in church life, don't we? But also, what, what, a, what a blessing, what a privilege. And we want to manage those gifts God has given us very well to minister to each other and to accomplish the work that God has for you in his church. So I think valuing your role as a gift of the grace of God does motivate, it does fuel, it does create an eagerness and an excitement, but it also results in a gratitude, doesn't it? And again, I know, I mean, I've been involved in church ministry for 25 years as a, as a pastor. You can get weary. You can grow tired. You can get to the point where you feel like, boy, we've put in our time and maybe it's time for somebody younger to Use that energy and get involved. But shouldn't it create in us a sense of gratitude that, boy, I still have energy and strength to use for the Lord. And what a privilege it is for me to use however many years, whatever measure of time God has blessed me with to serve him in his church until Jesus comes or my last breath happens and he takes me home as long as I have strength. I think it will produce a gratitude, and we, do not, we will not serve him out of obligation or guilt or, oh boy, there's an announcement and they need help and I got to do this, but of, of thankfulness and gratitude. And I think it also helps us realize that whatever we do, whether it is speaking or serving, whether it's up front or behind the scenes, that it's a privilege for us to do it and an honor. And we thank our Heavenly Father for it. As I teach the college students that I have in the pastoral studies program about pastoral ministry, I actually start right here when I talk about pastoral ministry. And I say, do you know what the origin of pastoral ministry is? It's not the need for a leader. It's not just like in the business world, we need some organizational head to make things run well. Pastoral ministry originates with the grace of God. It is God's grace. God in his grace gifted the church with this role and these people. And that's what you see down in, in verse 11 where he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So those who are in ministry, those going into ministry, on the path toward pastoral ministry, need to see this as a blessing and a privilege as well and know that the origin of our ministry is the grace of God and that has many implications with it as well. That would be reason enough to value the opportunities that we have to serve in the church to know that it comes from the grace of God. But there is a second reason that we see in this text for valuing your role in Christ's church building work and it is this. It is because it displays your role in Christ. Church building work displays 
the greatness and the goodness of God. It displays the greatness and the goodness of God. And, and as I said, Paul lists the gifts in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Peter categorizes the gifts. Here in, in Ephesians 4, Paul just refers to them. And his emphasis is not so much on the kinds of gifts, though he lists those roles in verse 11. He starts out by highlighting the giver, the ascended Christ, the one who gave. And Paul included here an illustration that emphasizes Christ and the giver. And this illustration that he includes shows how, how your role in the church displays the greatness and the goodness of God. In uh, verse 8, he is quoting from Psalm 68. And he, he cites this Old Testament passage as a description of the event when Christ equipped the church with these gifts. Look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And I want, I want us to understand what Paul was doing here. Again, he was using, like we do sometimes when we speak, he was using an illustration. And he was using imagery that these people would have understood. Imagine a king leading an army out to war, either because his nation's borders are being threatened and he's going to defend them, or he wants to expand the territory of his kingdom, and so he wants to take over other lands and nations. Or he just wants to ransack a city for valuables, and to capture slaves. Now, the fact that the Psalms and also Paul includes this illustration doesn't endorse that kind of, of pillaging, but it's something they would have understood and been familiar with. So he's borrowing from that, that imagery. If a king was victorious in battle, he returned to his own land with captives and spoils taken from the conquered foe. And they would enter the city in a parade and display all the loot that he had, had gotten on his excursion as well as the captives he had taken and parade them in front of his people, reveling in the victory. And they would, they would laud him. They would applaud him for his military might. If he was feeling generous, the king might sometimes share the spoils with his people just to show his goodwill. So he was parading and reveling in and displaying his conquering power, we might say his greatness. But he was also demonstrating his goodness by sharing of those spoils with his people. And you can kind of see where Paul was going here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, and using this description of Christ and, and, just, and showing Christ as a conquering king. Jesus descended to earth to conquer his enemies, Satan and sin and death. And hell. And he perfectly obeyed God in his life. And in his death, he fully paid the penalty for sin. And by his resurrection, he conquered death and made a way for us to have eternal life. And when he was finished, he returned victorious. He ascended back to heaven to the right hand of his Father. And Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, victorious Christ, shared the spoils of his victory with us. If you have been forgiven for your sins, that is one of the spoils of victory that Christ obtained by his death and his resurrection on the cross because he rose victorious. If you can say with confidence today, I have an inheritance in eternity, when I breathe that last breath and I am ushered into death and I cross into what for us is very unknown, for many people very fearful, but I have a confidence that where I will end up, my ultimate destiny is with the Lord in a place called heaven. That's because Christ has given you the promise of eternal life and you have assurance of it. That is part of the spoils of the victory that he has, has performed. And he distributes gifts to his people, as he says the end of verse 8. The abilities and opportunities to help in his work of building the church, he gave gifts to men. Now, we're going to go a little bit further here in this text, and I want you to understand what Paul was doing in verse 9 and verse 10. It gets a little bit complicated. It almost sounds like Paul is stating the obvious. 
But he's highlighting this idea of the ascended Christ. And this adds to the value of what Christ has done for us. And it highlights the fact that using your gifts displays the greatness and the goodness of God. So so go go here with me just for a minute. Look at verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? The translation that I'm reading from and that probably many of you are looking at says the lower regions, comma, the earth. You might see a footnote there that gives uh, an alternative reading, which is the lowest or lower parts of the earth. That would be a literal reading of this text, the lower parts of the earth. And and the idea is that Jesus came down. The direction that he came was down from his rightful place in glory by his father's side. And he descended down. And the question here is not so much where did he go, but how far did he descend? He left his place of glory with his father. He became a man who lived on the earth, but his incarnation took him even further into the depths of human experience. And he descended not just into into humanity, but into the lower parts of the earth. And there's some um, possibilities for what Paul might have meant by that phrase, the lower parts of the earth. I want to show you what, what I think he's saying here. Would you look with me just a few pages over to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul is describing Jesus' descent. And look at what he says in Philippians 2, starting with verse 6. Philippians 2, verse 6. So he's referring to Christ at the end of verse 5, Christ Jesus. And then verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here Paul is naming the steps downward that Jesus took from his position of equality with God, relinquishing his reputation, taking the form of a slave and becoming a man who obeyed God even to the point of death. And as Paul describes it here, even the cross death, which was the greatest kind of stigma and suffering. So social stigma and physical suffering that a person could experience in that day. So what Paul was saying in Philippians 2 is that Jesus descended to the lowest point of human existence, and even became the object of derision of the very ones he had created and loved and was dying for in that moment. As Isaiah wrote, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I think back in Ephesians 4, that's what Paul is describing. It is this humiliation and degradation of the cross when Jesus became the object of his own creature's mockery and torture and was treated as the lowest of the low among humanity. The lower parts of the earth, I think, is referring to that lowest point in human existence that a man can go. And that is where Jesus was. It was death, but it was a cross death. And Paul included it back here in Ephesians 4 to support his point that Jesus Christ came, descended step by step to that lowest point of human existence, but then he did not remain there, did he? Death did not conquer him. The cross did not finish him. The tomb could not hold him because he rose victorious and he ascended back to heaven. He returned absolutely, completely vindicated and glorious and victorious. And so in verses 9 and 10, he says, he, he ascended, yes, but he descended first. And then that same one who descended, ascended far above all the heavens. And then Paul takes it one more step when he says, 
that he might fill all things. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But that just takes it again to that next level where Christ is in this position of glory. So he came from the highest position to the lowest, and then he returned from the lowest to the highest. He is great, having conquered all his enemies, and he is good, giving gifts to men. And so the reason for valuing our role in Christ's church-building work is that it displays the greatness and the goodness of God. And the ascended Christ is the one who has given it to us. There could be no greater person. Therefore, our gifts could have no greater value. Uh, when I was pastoring in South Carolina, one of the hobbies I enjoyed and activities that I enjoyed is uh, trout fishing out in the mountains to the north of, of the uh, city of Greenville. And there was a man in our church, and he, uh, just out of kindness, just to be uh, a friend, one time gave me a gift. And he worked for the Del Monte Fruit Company. And he was a representative, so he would go out to the stores and check the displays, make sure the fruit was all, you know, looked good and wasn't rotting or anything. And, and he used a, a knife, and he called it his fruit knife. And uh, so, so on my desk one day, there was this box. I opened it up. There was a uh, kind of a canvas case, and I opened up the case, and there was this stainless steel folding knife. It was probably about five inches long closed, so opening it up about twice that long. And on the side of it was inscribed Del Monte. So he was giving me a fruit knife like he used. And it was just a, an act of friendship and something he thought I might enjoy having. I mean, who doesn't like a knife, right? And what I realized was that that knife was perfect to take with me when I went trout fishing. It would just fit nicely in my vest, wasn't bulky. And, uh, of course, the idea of, of uh, fishing is, as we talked about the other day, catching, Right. And, uh, and then if it's nice, tasty trout, of course, the next step is enjoying them in the pan. So a, a, a step in between is cleaning them, right? So fishing, catching, cleaning, and then cooking, eating. And that, that knife was perfect for when I would get down on one knee by the river, that cold water rushing past, and hear the, the, the rapids coming over the, the stones, and clean my fish, Surrounded by the beauty of the forest and the sky and the fresh air and, uh, and then take them home. But using that knife reminded me of my friend. And so when I used the knife, I would think of him. And I think that's what Paul is highlighting for us here. The fact that as we employ our gifts in Christ's church building work, it's not about us, is it? It's not even about the gifts. Oh, look what I can do. Oh, look at how good I am. Oh, pay attention and, and affirm me and, and thank me. No, it's about him. Using our gifts draws attention to the ascended Christ. And when we use them, we are displaying his greatness and his goodness. We only have them because of him. We can only use them and serve in the church because of him. And, and this helps us understand the impact that we're to have in the world around us. In fact, let's, let's narrow the focus to your community. The impact you should be having in your community is to display the greatness and the goodness of God. Let me show you something else. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As you uh, read through and study Ephesians, you'll find that Paul uses the idea of being full or fullness repeatedly. Look with me, please, at Ephesians 1, verse 22. Ephesians 1, 22. And he, that's, that's God, put all things under his, that's Jesus, feet, and gave him, Jesus Christ, as head over all things to the church which is his body. Now look at the description Paul gives to the church. The fullness of him who fills all in all. There's some way, we won't try to go into it this morning, there's some way in which the church exhibits the fullness of Christ. 
So, so back in chapter 4, Paul said that, that Christ fills all in all. He gave us these gifts so that he might fill all in all. And in what form does he do that today? The church, which is you, isn't it? So how does Jesus Christ fill this valley? Through believers. And they're more than just you, I'm sure, in this area. But you are an essential part of that, aren't you? So whoever you are, wherever you live, the neighbors that you talk to, the restaurant booths you sit in, the desks you sit at where you work or the places where you work, the classmates you see, wherever you go, you take the presence of Christ, don't you? And Christ fills, he permeates this community through you. And you, by using your gifts in the church, allow this church to display the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. There are various ways to serve in the church, as we've mentioned, formally, informally, in a position, through relationships, leading, assisting, up front, behind the scenes. But just remember that using your gift displays the greatness and goodness of God. So when you do the work of ministry, think about him. And it's probably good for us sometimes to check our motives, isn't it? Why do you serve? Why do we serve? Is it obligation? Is it personal fulfillment? Is it to receive affirmation? Is it because you think other people expect you to? Or do you serve with the motivation to display the greatness and the goodness of God? Maybe you've lost that motivation. Maybe that fire has just started to die down. Maybe you're tired and need some motivation. Just remind yourself, you know, as I serve, I have the privilege of putting on display the conquering power of my Savior and the grace he has shown in my life by giving me this opportunity. Maybe you don't feel like doing it in the moment. Maybe it's hard to show up. Maybe difficult to love or serve that other person. Remember, it's not about you, is it? Or your own fulfillment or how you feel or your pleasure, but to display the greatness and goodness of God. And maybe you don't have a role right now. Maybe you're not involved, maybe not connected, maybe not plugged in, or you're just getting there. I hope this will push you over that bump a little bit. Say, you know what? I need to connect. I need to volunteer. I need to make myself available. Show me what it is. How can I serve? Because I want to display the greatness and the goodness of God. Now look with me, please, starting in verse 11. I want us to see one more reason that we should value our role in Christ's church building work. And I read these for you, so let me just highlight in verse 11, you see he gave. So here he's talking about these specific roles. And there are some establishing roles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, those who spread the gospel. And then, then the pastor teachers, so those, those shepherds who, who equip the flock now, as he says in verse 12, equipping the saints. Saints are all believers, not just a select few, not an elite group, but all believers. So to equip every, every believer, I might, you might say every church member, for the work of ministry. So we have pastors equipping, we have, we have saints being equipped, and then all performing the work. And I'm going to substitute a, a preposition here, unto, that'll be a literal translation here, unto, building up the body of Christ, until... So we have, we have movement in a direction until we also have progress over time until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Let me stop for a second. He's certainly including individual spiritual growth, but I think he's especially referring to the corporate growth of the church. So we're all maturing. The church is maturing in unity, in maturity toward the measure of the stature, that's how big it is. But it's not talking about attendance numbers or offering amounts. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's that word again, fullness. The fullness of Christ. So the announcer 
tells you the, um, the vital statistics of the football player that's going in the game and says he's 6'6 and weighs 300 pounds. That's the measure of his stature. How do you measure Jesus? And how do you follow that model? How do you as a church grow toward that model? Well, that brings us to the third reason that your role is valuable. It is this, we are all working toward the same goal. We are all working toward the same goal. And that goal is, as he describes here, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that lifts your eyes from even the physical place and the number of people and what things look like to him, to Jesus. In John chapter 1, John talked about how when Jesus came, we received his fullness his fullness. And you remember what John described as Jesus' fullness? He said, Jesus is full of grace and truth. So there's the announcer. John, here comes your Savior. Let me tell you what he's like. Here is the measure of his stature, full of grace and truth. That's what Jesus is like. And that becomes the model for the church. That becomes the goal of your growth as a church. And again, we could try to dive into the depths of this, but not this morning. But the idea is that our goal that we're moving toward is a church, is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, a maturity to where you resemble Jesus as a church. Individually, yes, but also as a church. And that includes grace showing favor to each other, caring about each other, being compassionate toward one another, helping each other during times of need, encouraging and comforting when you're hurting, exhorting and, and coming alongside when you're struggling. When there are wrongs, and there will be in the life of a church, among the members of a church, when there are wrongs and offenses and hurts, what do gracious people do? What do they do? You tell me. Or show grace, forgive, seek forgiveness, extend forgiveness, be reconciled together. That's what gracious people do, right? And then that grace spills out into your community. Do you think anyone in your community might hear about Lighthouse Bible Church and say, you know what, those are such gracious people? And what about truth? Speaking truth in love speaking truth from the pulpit, in the classes, in the Bible studies, in discipleship, but also words of encouragement, words of comfort, words of hope, speaking truth, sometimes confronting, at times rebuking each other. Hey, this needs to change. Speaking truth, but also that truth overflowing into your community. What are the answers? Well, by the grace of God, you have them, don't you? And you can be ready, as Peter said, to give a reason for the hope that lies in you. And speak truth. And you can read through the Gospels and see how Jesus displayed grace and spoke truth to person after person after person after person. Some of them his disciples. Some of them those who needed to follow him. So there's your goal as a church. To grow to resemble Christ so that you can represent him in your community. And that makes your gifts and your role in Christ's church building work extremely valuable. I have the privilege of working in a place where young people are being equipped to devote their energy and abilities to serving local churches. I know some of you are students in places like that. And I'm telling you, for faith in me, that, that is a privilege. I mean, these students, most of them are serious about giving their lives to serve Jesus Christ in this world. And they're investing years in preparing for that because they value their role in Christ's church building work. And I just want to want to put it out there for, for everybody here. And I'm delighted to see younger guys, younger girls. Is that on your mind at all? I'm not talking about a college necessarily. I'm talking about that that level of value on the church. Is that in your thinking? 
as you think about the years in front of you, you know, the church truly is worthy. It's not perfect. There's some problems. But the church of Jesus Christ is worth my investment, my commitment. And I want to be on that path of serving Christ with my life in the church. When I was um, finishing my senior year of high school, is when I really started to think about what God wanted me to do with my life. And I had the thought, I wonder if God might want me in vocational ministry, a pastor, something like that. And at first, I didn't value that thought. In fact, I kind of dismissed it. But I've learned, as a young person, it is important for you, if a thought like that comes to your mind, to value it. And I wonder, I'm thinking especially of, of guys, young men, if the thought came to your mind, you know, I wonder if God wants me to be a pastor. And at first you think, ah, <laughs> no way, not me, or no, I'm not interested in that. But would you push past that initial response and think, you know what, that would actually be worthy of my consideration. In fact, it would be an honor if God gave me that opportunity. And I hope that whatever role God has for you, that when that thought or that opportunity or, or the request for you to be involved comes, that you think, boy, you know what? Maybe this is something God has for me, and it would truly be a privilege. And I would be grateful to serve him in this way. Would you look one more time at the end of verse 10? Ephesians chapter 4, the end of verse 10. That he might fill all things. This reminds us that church is not primarily about us, is it? The church is how God makes himself known on the earth. And how he makes himself known in your community. So your role in the church is of great value. Because it is part of the riches of grace you receive at salvation. Because it displays the greatness and the goodness of God. And because even though your role may be different from someone else's, we are all working toward the same goal. You value your role in the church. If you do, you'll be grateful for it. You'll be committed to it. You'll be joyful in it. And what a privilege it is and an honor and a blessing to be included in and have a role in the work of building up the church of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has been truly an honor to be with you here today, and we thank you for that. Could I pray for us, please? Lord Jesus, as we bow before you, we are so grateful for the salvation you give us by your grace, for the change you make in our lives, for the new direction that you give our lives. And we are grateful that we not only are along for the ride, but that we can actually have a part in what you are performing, what you are displaying, what you are achieving, your sovereign purpose, your grand plan, and one day the glorious consummation of it all. Thank you that we have a part in it. May we value it and live accordingly. Thank you for this church. May your blessing be here because of Christ.